You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. And as we head into a time of hearing from God's word, would you say a prayer with me? Let us pray. Father God, thank you again that we can gather, that we can worship, that we can commune, that we can transcend, uh, that we can hear from your word. We pray that as we do come to open your word, would you open our hearts and minds, ears and eyes to hear and receive from you. And as we listen to stories that we may uh, become familiar with uh, over the years, we pray that you would take the old stories and speak a fresh truth to us. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a thing called Summer Stories, where we go through some of the most well-known stories in our scripture, maybe that we learned about as kids. Uh, certainly, we haven't gone through them very much here, um, and try to get something, like I said, fresh from them. Here's how I understand this, because sometimes new, when it comes to the faith, means uh, uh, you're going outside of the faith. Is, is, is what's happening. Sometimes when you try to get too new, then you can forget the old truths. But I imagine it like bread. You have sourdough starter, and you don't mess with sourdough starter, right? That thing needs to be unchanged for generations, just passing it down time and time again. But you could take that sourdough starter and bake fresh expressions of bread every day. And so that's what I hope to take. These old stories, the sourdough starter, maybe we can get a new loaf of bread from it this morning and moving into this week. As always, um, we are going to take some questions if you have them. You could feel free to call them out if you want. We're an intimate enough group, but if you want to text for some anonymity, go ahead. That's the number there, and my personal phone number will be on at the end. But like I said, we're, we're learning and relearning some of the old stories, and we're so excited to do that. Today we are talking about Noah's Ark. Noah and the Ark. Something maybe you've heard a million times. Maybe you aren't familiar with it. That's okay. We're going to go through it. And today, we're going to focus on the beginning and the end of Noah's story. The beginning and the end of her story, of his story, her story, um, so that we can uh, see what's really happening. A lot of us know the middle stuff. A lot of us know what's happening with the ark and the animals and things going on. But let's talk about the beginning and the end. And here's one of the questions I'm not asking. I'm not asking, is it true? Is it historically true? I find that to be a really unhelpful question because you can get bogged down in the details. You can get bogged down in trying to find the scholarship and listening to all the debates. That question is not uh, helpful for me. The questions I'm asking when I come to some of these stories is this. Why do we tell this story? What's the logic of the story? The story has an internal logic. Even if there's parts that are hard to believe, even if there's parts that we're not sure about the historicity of it all, what's the story, what's the logic of the story? And ultimately, what does the story want to say to us? What does God want to say to us through this story? So those are the questions I'm asking, yeah? To hear Noah's story, we have to start in the beginning. We have to start with Adam and Eve. And I'm going to go quick because I said I was going to have a shorter service, and what that usually means is not cutting my sermon shorter. That means preaching extra fast. So get ready. Hold on. Here we go. Uh, summarizing Adam and Eve's story, we know to be the first humans that are created, put in this garden to work. 
And here's what they do. They work at a garden. These details are important because we're going to see them again. They work at a garden. They're supposed to bless the world. They eat that fruit. They realize, what well, this is what happens when they eat the fruit. They realize they're naked, which is funny, right, kids? Nakedness. Yeah, that's funny. They're shamed. They're vulnerable. It's not good. And, and then ultimately, they plunge humanity into a curse. They plunge humanity into darkness, disease, things like that. And what was the curse? Snake's going to crawl on its belly and eat dust the rest of its life. That's part of it. One of it is that we'd have spiritual separation from God. One of it is that we would work hard in the soil, but we would not get back the amount of work we put in. It would be frustrated work. We, by the sweat of our brow, God says, we will farm the soil. And increased childbearing pains. Essentially what God says is that everything will be hard for everyone. That's the curse. They have two kids right away, Cain and Abel. Maybe you've heard these names, maybe you haven't. This is the first recorded murder in history, uh, for, and scripturally at least. Cain kills Abel, his brother. They, one was a farmer, one tended livestock. There was jealousy between them, and as a result, there was a killing that happened. Cain goes on to start a family. And they're city builders, and they make tools, and they make art, and they make music, and they're strong warriors. And you're like, that all sounds really great. But we get to this place where this man is named Lamech. That's part of Cain's lineage. Remember this name. We're going to see it again. Lamech. And Lamech sings a little song, and he sings them to his wives, and he's the first person in the Bible to have multiple wives. And it's not a nice song. He says, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. Cain will be paid back seven times. I will be paid back 77 times. The moral of Cain's family story is that they multiply violence on the earth. They multiply the bad stuff, the ugly stuff, the broken stuff over and over and over again. Adam and Eve have another son. And that son's name is, does anybody know? Seth. I know some Seths. It felt so anticlimactic for service. I was like, Cain and Abel and Methuselah and Eve. And then you're like, Seth, Seth's their third son. Spitting image of his father. That's what we know about him. And his lineage is holy. Holy people come from Seth. And he has a Lamech, and it's totally different. And these, they're being compared, contrasted, these lineages, through this man, these two different men named Lamech. The first one multiplied violence on the earth. This Lamech says, what does that have to do with Noah, James? We're getting there. Lamech became the father of a son and named him Noah. And he said, this one will give us relief from our hard work, from pain, from the pain in our hands because of the fertile land that the Lord cursed. Noah was to be the savior of humanity. Noah was going to be the one that reversed the curse that Adam and Eve plunged all of humanity into. This is what his dad had hoped for him. Cain's family multiplied violence, but Noah's family, Seth's family, multiplied goodness. That was the hope. And we know the story from there. Oh, I have this. Noah's going to be the Savior, the one who redeems humanity. But we know what God's plan is, if you know the story at all. That God decides he, the world is so wicked and evil that God is going to flood the whole earth. The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. This is Cain's family multiplying violence on the earth. 
The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth, and God was heartbroken. Sometimes we think this story is about anger and vengeance and wrath. And it begins with God being sad and heartbroken. And the Lord said, I'm going to wipe off of the land the human race that I've created. But as for Noah, the Lord approved. There's always one. We'll get to this in a minute. So God and Noah come up with a plan to build the story, to build the boat as the flood comes. We know it. I got a short video for us if we, if we want a refresher on the middle of the story. Remember, we're focusing on the beginning and the end. Here it is, God's story, Noah. Check it out. God's story, Noah. So part of God's story is about Noah, and it begins like this. First, let's start at the beginning. God created the world to be the most perfect home, with mountains as playgrounds and oceans as swimming pools. Then God made people to be like him and to live in it. And he wanted us to play with animals and explore jungles and be close to him forever. It was perfect. But instead, people ran away from God. They hurt each other. They ruined the perfect home God had built for them. The Bible says this made God really, really sad. So sad, in fact, that God decided to wash away all the evil and meanness and cruelty in the world by sending a huge flood to destroy everything to get rid of all the wrong things and the people who kept doing them. But there was one guy who followed God. That's right, Noah. God had a special rescue plan for Noah. He told Noah to build a big boat called an ark to stay in during the flood. It had to be big enough for Noah's wife and kids and at least two of every kind of animal on earth. So pretty big. And Noah had to build it in the middle of dry land which means his neighbors probably thought he was crazy, or at least a little weird. Kids, sometimes following God looks a little weird. We're okay with that. Anyway, looking weird didn't stop Noah. He knew he needed to be rescued. So he finished the ark and waited for God to bring the animals. And God brought them all right. Just imagine what those neighbors thought when they saw an entire zoo strolling through their yards. When Noah's family and all the animals were inside, God shut the door. Then, the Bible says God opened the bottom of the ocean and the windows of the sky. We don't know what that means exactly, but we do know it was tons of water. It rained like this for 40 days and 40 nights. And the rain wasn't the worst of it. Once the water stopped, it didn't go away. Noah and his family sat cooped up, floating in the ark for over a year, just waiting and waiting and waiting. Did we mention they waited? Well, when the tops of the mountains finally started to show, Noah sent out a dove to see if there was dry land. There wasn't. A week later, he sent the dove again. The water was going down. A week later, Noah sent out the dove one last time. It didn't come back, which meant it had found a home. Noah and his family could leave the ark. The very first thing Noah did was build an altar to worship God and thank him for his rescue. And God made a covenant with Noah, which is like a very special promise. God promised never to destroy the earth with a flood, even though he knew humans would keep right on doing wrong things that made him sad. God put a rainbow in the sky to remind Noah that he would definitely keep this promise. And just like God rescued Noah, he would one day send his own perfect son, Jesus, to earth. Jesus would take the punishment of all people. 
then God could be close to everyone who wants to follow him. And that's the story of Noah. Thanks for watching that with me. So a lot of that stuff in there, there's actually pretty accurate as far as the details go. They were on the boat for a very long time, at least a year, over a year. Um, but some of the stuff in there that we take away from the story of Noah is not actually in, in our scripture. So one of the things that we often take away from the story of Noah is that um, God told Noah to do something outrageous. And he has to stand in the face of his own culture and build this boat in the middle of this dry desert, right? Even if his neighbors are making fun of him or something like that. That's not really in the story. That's something that we've read into the story. I think the story wants to show us something else. So let's wrap up the story. Because usually it ends right there. We go, yay, there's a rainbow and there's animals and things are good. But there's a little bit more and this is where things get hard again. Because you're probably thinking the end, that's the end. I thought you said Noah was supposed to be the savior of the world, and it doesn't feel like the world is all that saved sometimes. Uh, here's where my son would say Noah makes a, a big oof. Right? He messes up big time here at the end. This is going to be hard to see, but I'll get us through it. This is the last part of Noah's story. Noah gets off the boat with his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They come out of the ark. Ham, it says, was Canaan's father. So Ham has a son. These were Noah's three sons. And from the whole earth, they, popu they populated the whole earth. And that's really one of the points that this story wants to get across. In the logic of this story, these three sons populate the whole earth. Noah is a farmer. And he made a new start and planted a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and got drunk out of his mind. And he took off his clothes in his tent. Ham, Canaan's father, saw his father naked and told his two brothers, probably making fun of him. Shem and Japheth, the two older brothers, took a robe and they, they threw it on their shoulders and they walked backwards and they covered their father's nakedness. Um, and they turned away. When Noah woke up from his wine, he discovered what his youngest had done. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest servant of his brothers. He also said, bless the Lord of Shem. Canaan will be his servant. May God give space to Japheth. He will live in Shem's tents and Canaan will be his servant. Do you see how the story ends? Noah is supposed to be the savior of the world and the only family left after the flood, they are supposed to repopulate the world and this thing happens that causes so much shame for Noah that he curses his children to inequality, unfairness, injustice. Only people on the planet, according to the story. And they are going to be the parents, the ancestors of all human beings. And now they're cursed to injustice, unfairness, and inequality. He plunges, human well, plunges humanity back into another curse. Adam and Noah are alike. Let's go through some of the similarities real quick. Adam has three sons. Noah has three sons. They're to repopulate the earth or populate the earth. They're both farmers. They both eat and drink fruit. So if you take one lesson away from today, it's probably that fruit is really bad. You should stay away from it forever. Don't drink or eat it at all. Get that juice out of your house. Just kidding. Um, there's a nakedness event that happens and shame that happens. There's a curse that is spoken, and all of humanity is now again replunged into this curse. Do you see what happens, what's going on. 
And so I guess your turn. If you have anything to add, I'd love to hear it out loud, vocally say it. Why do we tell this story? What does God want to say to us through this story? What do you, what's hitting you? Yeah. Great question. Good. Yeah. To curse the son. Yeah, great. I think this is something in our culture that we struggle with because we don't have the same concept of blessing and curse that they did. And so when a father or a parent or an ancestor spoke a blessing, it was really meaningful, and they thought it, was, it, it did something in their lives. And the same thing would happen for curses. But maybe something that we would have that's similar is like a final wish. Dad's final wish was that you would be his slave. And so that justifies all kinds of family imbalance. We see that with money and wills and stuff like that. So I would say that uh, we probably don't have the same understanding of, of words and the power of words that they do, but we kind of get the idea that, like, Dad just doomed his kids, like, he, these are his favorites or something. You know how we can do those kind of same kind of things with our words where we mess up whole families by, uh, by not doing it well. Here's my head, heart, hands. Oh, yeah, you wanted to, what's saying to you? Canaan was the grandson of Noah. Good question. Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan, because Ham had already been blessed by God entering into the ark. And so Noah could not reverse God's blessing on Ham, so he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't know if it makes sense, but it makes sense in the story, right? Yeah. Here's my head, heart, hands, and and I don't have a lot more after this. I think what God wants us to know in this story is that God is gracious and always provides a way, which is sometimes very hard to read in this story because there's so much that happens with floods and the racing of humanity. But God was broken hearted about what humanity had become. God had decided to wipe humanity off the map. And yet from the ark to the covenant promise, God provided a way. God went against what God wanted to do and favored one so that there could be a way forward, a promise forward, a covenant forward, a way forward for humanity to continue to thrive and be close. So one of the things the story wants to convey in the Jewish Hebrew wisdom is that God always provides a way. Noah's story is about God not giving up on us totally, which is sometimes, again, I know, hard to read, but this is one of the lessons they want us to take away from this. What does God want us to feel in this? What does God want us to experience? All that brokenness that we read about from Adam to Cain to Noah, all of that is in us. All of it. Because the way that the story reads is they are our spiritual ancestors. And the way that they acted is we get some of that. We inherit some of that. We perpetuate some of that. We continue those curses that were spoken by the way that we live. And you need a Savior is exactly what this story is trying to convince you. But it's not Noah, and it's not you, right? Noah is as close to perfect as there was in this story. Always obedient, always obedient, always obedient, and yet he single-handedly plunges humanity back into disunity, discord, and disconnection. Sometimes we think we can be our own savior, and I just always think about, you think you could save yourself? You can't even scratch your own back, right? Like, 
I can't even reach that one spot. How am I going to save my own life? But I can't do it. I can't do it. When you get old, it gets harder. These stories allow us to name the broken parts of ourselves because we see them in our spiritual parents and our spiritual ancestors. And if they suffered and struggled through it, we can name it in our own hearts. It's easy to go, hey, the world is still broken. I still see the curse out there. I still see disunity and disconnection every time I turn on the news. But really the point of these stories is to go, that's our spiritual ancestor. That stuff is in us. That's part of our lineage, our spiritual lineage. And the point isn't to condemn or judge, but to be introspective and reflective about how we perpetuate the curse, the inequality that was spoken over us by the ancestors that have gone before us. All that stuff is in us. It's in us. It's in all of us. But the good news is you aren't a follower of Adam or Cain or Noah or Shem or Ham. We're followers of Jesus who has redeemed us from the curses of Adam and Noah. Even though we still live in a world that lives under those curses a lot. As I said, these last two weeks have been really difficult to see everything that's going on. Last two months, y'all, to see the way that division has crept in over things. We still see the curse alive and well in the world around us. They still live out these inequalities, injustices, the unfairness in our way of life. So what do we do? My last point is always, what do we do? What do we do with our hands? How do we take this message and live it out in our world? I could say a lot of things here, like love. I could say a lot of things here, like be peacemakers. There's a lot of things that Jesus, as followers of Jesus, Jesus encourages us to do. But what's the bad news in Noah's world that Noah's dad wanted him to fix? Noah's dad wanted him to fix this idea of rest, peace. Noah will give us relief from our hard work, from the pain in our hands. Jesus says to us, come to me, all you who are weary, who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my teaching, my yoke, and learn from me. I am gentle and humble, and you will find rests, it says, for yourselves, but the language is for your souls. The curse of Adam and the curse of Noah run deep in our culture and in our own hearts, but Jesus promises a rest that runs deeper for those of us who follow him. So what are we supposed to do? There's a million lessons you could take away from this, and I hope God is speaking something to you, and even if it's different from this, I mean, we could spend six months, six months on Noah taking this story apart, and I got, I got honestly 20 minutes. Um, but I think one of the things that I'm hearing is that we need to live Jesus' rest and help lead others to it. The best thing you could do for a world that is under a curse is to show them what healing from that curse looks like. To live that rest and that peace and that healing that Jesus has for us. Embody it. Let it flow from you like a a living spring that just has a non-anxious presence and helps others do the same. We had some questions already. Are there any more questions? That's the the, uh, church number. And if that doesn't work because of the Wi-Fi, that's to my personal number. You could text me if you have it or just say it. Any questions? We, went, we did like six chapters today, y'all. So we, we jumped through a story.
Hearing none. Hearing all hearts clear. Here's my summary. God will always provide a way. We can always trust that even when God is heartbroken over our world and maybe even over the decisions that we've made, that God doesn't give up on us. Even sometimes when God is struggling, seeing the stuff that's going on in the world, that we know and trust that God is for us, especially in Jesus Christ. Romans tells us that why we were God's enemies, Jesus dies for us. And so it's, it's especially in our broken places that God meets us. With our heart, I think, I think the story is telling us that we can own the brokenness of the world that is inside of us all, that we don't have to keep perpetuating the curse, but we can be reflective and introspective about the ways that we do perpetuate those things, the way that we, we participate in, in the ways and the brokenness of the world around us. And with our hands, I think Jesus calls us to a rest that transcends any curse to live out the rest of Jesus and point others to it. And here's my spiritual practice for you this week, and then we'll be moving on from this. We all will find a moment to rest this week, probably a lot of moments to rest, but maybe not. I would love for you to take one of those moments and make it holy because my inclination is to make it an escape, right? Maybe, maybe a little bit like what Noah did. Noah is using his wine to escape his problems or whatever. I probably using... Uh, serial Netflix to escape my problems, just to shut my brain down for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, six hours. Whatever my phone screen says I'm on for that matter, I don't believe it. It's a lie. It's always like, you were on your phone for 25 hours today. I'm like, there's not even 25 hours in this day. Um, so maybe I could take a moment of rest and try to make it holy. Just a one moment for one part of this week and, and pray and try to tap into that rest that Jesus has for us instead of that escape from the curse that is always so ever before me. Would you pray as we move into a time of communion with me? Father, thank you for this story. There's so much to glean from it, but ultimately we see the ways of your own sadness about the world, the ways that you ultimately decide to be for us with grace and the ways that you're always for us in Jesus. Help us, help us, help us, Lord, to taste your goodness, to taste and see the rest you have for us, the living water, those things that quench our spiritual thirst and satisfy our deepest spiritual hungers. May we see your Son as the one who heals us from this curse, and may we live out that healing to the world around us while constantly confessing and being thoughtful and mindful about how we participate and perpetuate the curse around us. Help us to be like the city on the hill, beaming your healing for the world, your salvation for the world, that people would see us and see our good deeds and they would glorify you. Now, Father, as we come to a time of communion, as a time of eating this bread and drinking this juice, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in us and on these elements so that as we come here, we would connect with you. That as we would draw close, you promised you would draw close to us. So, Father, now, meet us here. Meet us in this time. And we, as one body, will now pray the Lord's Prayer. Table Church, would you pray the Lord's Prayer with me?
it says, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.